Hello and welcome to Open Source Governance. I'm your host Pendar and we're gonna listen to the second episode of this podcast. In this episode we will discuss elections and we will focus a little bit more on the contemporary examples what it means for democracy. I'll try to also dig in a little bit into what democracy is to see if elections is something by definition democratic. I will also try to explain the notion of trust within the election and look into the problems that there are within the electoral system around the world. So what is an election? If you remember from the last episode, we talked about the representative system and uh, parliaments and representing of a community within a larger body of legislative system. So these representatives are taking public office and they are responsible for making decisions together with the other representatives. In other cases, such as selecting a president, an individual is selected to uh, sit in a public office for serving in another branch, as for the case of the president, would be the executive branch. So the president is the head of the executive branch and is elected through an election. So election is basically a formal process of selecting a person for public office. But another usage that the election has is for directly choosing a question at hand. For example, when making a referendum, deciding over a general or universal question. And that is when individuals are participating in an election in order to accept or reject a political proposition. And that is done by their voting. But here, between voting to select a representative to hold a public office and voting uh, for a referendum in order to decide over a public question, there is a big difference. And the difference is between the democratic process. Voting for choosing somebody to hold a public office is considered a representative democracy, where you choose somebody to represent you to make decisions together with the other representatives. And in the referendum process, the individuals themselves directly decide over the question that is at hand. And that is called a direct democracy. Now, the results of the referendums sometimes are directly official and they are executive. And some other times they are just uh, advisory to the uh, executive branch or to the representative branch. And it reflects the opinion of the people in that matter in question. But in this episode, I'm going to focus more on the election for the representative. And in the next episode, I will try to explain the referendum, which uh, by its own is another topic to be unfolded. So elections are a usual mechanism by which modern representative democracies have operated since the 17th century. 
And like I said, they are used to fill the seats in the offices of the public, in the legislative branch, as well as executive branch, but also sometimes in the judiciary branch. These seats could be for regional or for local governmental positions. But elections are not limited to governmental issues. They could also be used in the private businesses and in companies and in organizations or institutions or in clubs or any other form that you can imagine that there is need for uh, reaching a consensus that needs a representative system. But speaking about consensus in the representative system, when the uh, representatives are already selected and they are in their seats, they are holding debates and they are basically making a concession about uh, a topic at hand. And they could form the content of the debate that is ongoing. But in an election... If you're uh, choosing a representative, well, it's pretty clear you accept somebody or not. You are voting somebody to be representing you or not, in which case you're not choosing the content or you're not debating. And if it's a referendum, it's a question that is given to you as an individual and you're not either influencing the content of that uh, discussion at hand. So it is important to know that the consensus and affecting the content of decisions usually are not affected by a citizen or an individual that is part of uh, a society. The functions of elections as described by Britannica is that the elections make a fundamental contribution to democratic governance because direct democracy is impractical in most modern societies. Democratic governments must be conducted through representatives. Elections enable voters to select leaders and to hold them accountable for their performance in the office. Accountability can be undermined when elected leaders do not care whether they are re-elected or when, one party or coalition is so dominant that there is effectively no choice for voters among alternative candidates, parties or policies. Nevertheless, the possibility of controlling leaders by requiring them to submit to regular and periodic elections helps to solve the problem of succession in leadership and thus contribute to the contribution of democracy. Moreover, where the electoral process is competitive and forces candidates or parties to expose their records and future intentions to popular scrutiny, elections serve as forums for the discussion of public issues and facilitate the expression of public opinion. Elections provide political education for citizens and ensure the responsiveness of democratic governments to the will of the people. They also serve to legitimize the act of those who wield power, a function that is performed to some extent even by elections that are non-competitive. 
elections also reinforce the stability and legitimacy of the political community. Like national holidays commemorating common experiences, elections link citizens to each other and thereby confirm the viability of the polity. As a result, elections help to facilitate social and political integration. And finally, elections serve a self-actualizing purpose by confirming the worth and dignity of the individual citizen as a human being. Whatever other needs voters may have, participation in an election serves to reinforce their self-esteem and self-respect. Voting gives people an opportunity to have their say and through expressing partisanship to satisfy their need to feel a sense of belonging. Even non-voting satisfies the need of some people to express their alienation from the political community. For precisely these reasons, the long battle for the right to vote and the demand for equality in electoral participation can be viewed as the manifestation of a profound human craving for personal fulfillment. So as you can see this uh, practical description of the election and what it is supposed to do in an ideal situation is kind of the definition of the election by the book and how the governments around the world want to showcase election and by involving the citizens or the members into this process, reminding them that they have a role in the whole picture and they are fulfilling a duty by partaking in the election. But then it goes further to explain that the form and substance of the election are two different things. It is important to distinguish between the form and the substance of the elections. In some cases, electoral forms are present, but the substance of an election is missing as when voters do not have a free and genuine voice between at least two alternatives. Most countries hold elections in at least the formal sense, but in many of them the elections are not competitive, meaning all but one party may be forbidden to contest. Or the electoral situation is in other respect highly compromised. So this definition is about a really competitive and uh, fair election where there are multiple options to be chosen and the election is not rigged and everything is undergoing a very transparent process. The elections were used in ancient times in Athens, for example, and that was called sortition that I will explain in another episode, which is a very important episode of our podcast. They were also used in Rome and in the process of selection of a pope and the holy Roman emperors, for example. Or if you're looking for an Eastern example, you could look at the Mehestan, which was in the ancient Persia. And it dates back to 247 BC uh, during the Parthian Empire. And it was kind of some sort of um, representative council where the elite would take decisions. And I gave the examples of the other representative systems before. 
Some of them are considered to be direct democracies, some of them are not, because the body of this legislative system is formed of the elite and not the people, and so on. But the origins of the election, the way we know it now in our contemporary world, lies kind of within the 17th century events around the world. For example, the gradual emergence of representative governments in Europe and North America, following the revolutions in France and uh, in America. And this was the time when the holistic notion of representation characteristics of the Middle Ages was transformed into a more individualistic concept, in which the individual is a critical unit to be counted. So once the governments started to believe in deriving their power from the consent of the governed, and they practiced to seek this consent on a regular basis, the question of who should be included among this governed society into this consent process became the first question. And this is when the idea of one man, one vote came into being, and that is basically what we call the suffrage movement. In the suffrage movement, uh, the idea of every citizen is equal to the other one is uh, kind of the core of the discussion. In the context of the suffrage movement, any person with any job and any position is equal to any person in power or any elite or wealthy person or a person of influence. And their voices are basically equal within the eyes of the law. But the suffrage movement didn't come out of the blue and it was not something easy to be achieved. And certainly it was not by itself something that would promote complete equal rights for all citizens. Because first, the male suffrage movement was established and it was ensured almost everywhere by 1920s. But women's suffrage was not established until somewhere around 1928 in Britain and 1944 in France. 1949 in Belgium and 1971 in Switzerland. So you can see that the struggle that it took for the social movement of suffrage was something that caused a lot of fractions and frustrations, injustice and activism throughout many years. And if you think about the black people's votes, for example, in the United States or in South Africa, or in other places, or currently in Palestine and Israel, you can have an idea that how the suffrage movement is something of importance, and over the time, civil rights activists have paved the way for the future generations to be able to uh, use their very basic right of voting. So I just wanted to say that although in this project, the open source governance, the idea is to rethink the representative system and to come up with an alternative for it, one should not forget all the suffering that has been going on for all these activists and all these sacrifices throughout the history only to be able to vote. In many places, still that is a dream to have a fair and healthy election even if it is for the current representative uh, method that we are trying to criticize and rethink.
what did this unfair election system look like? As opposed to the idea of one person, one vote that is being conducted now in many parts of the world, systems of plural voting were maintained in some countries. This would give certain social groups an electoral advantage. For example, in the United Kingdom, university graduates and business owners could cast more than one ballot until 1948, and before the World War I, both Austria and Prussia had three classes of votes that would effectively keep electoral power in the hands of the upper social strata. And as close as just 1965 in the United States, legal barriers and intimidations effectively barred most African Americans, especially those who were living in the south of the United States, from being able to cast their ballots in the election. Elections became more popular during the 19th and the 20th century, and in Western Europe countries started to become competitive in holding more mass elections with the purpose of institutionalizing the diversity that had existed in those countries. But mass elections had quite different purpose and consequences under the one-party communist regimes of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union during the period from the end of the World War II to 1989. Because in these governments the elections were held and the consent was given, but there was really no competition between different parties and the choices were already made by the main government or you could only vote for or against one single candidate basically. So you can imagine that in this situation the election is held as a symbolic way to show the unity of the people rather than the diversity of them. And this is used for propaganda purposes for internal or external use. So if you were living in the East Bloc of Europe in 1989, uh, the only option that you had was either to vote for the candidate, to cross off the name of that candidate as you're opposing that name, or to not to vote at all. But in many situations, the non-voters and the ones who were against that candidate would be prosecuted and followed or stripped of their social rights or even punished. Because in the eyes of the government and the regime, every individual is very proud and happy and lucky to be under this, uh, for example, social regime. And it would seem insane to be against whatever that uh, government has to offer to you. So you had to show your appreciation at all times. This would ensure a nearly 100% turnout of all the eligible voters and it would demonstrate a fully backed regime to the rest of the world, or at least that was what they were thinking. If you want to have a contemporary example, you could look at North Korea. In North Korea, there are multiple parties, but the main giant political party is called the Workers' Party of Korea, and it leads the Democratic Front for the Reunification of Korea. And every five years they hold an election and this giant party proposes a name or multiple names if it is for more office seats. And basically as someone who's eligible to vote, you would go stand in the line dressed up and uh, they give you a paper with the name of one candidate on it and you put it in the ballot. And if you want to cross that name, you have to do it in front of everybody else. There's no way that nobody can not know. 
and there is almost next to nobody who did that because you should be crazy to do it and if you don't vote they will come after you of course and after you vote you go in the city and then you dance and you should show that you're happy and you should express your happiness and of course the government receives a hundred percent turnout with a hundred percent positive uh, results and because of that the country is called the democratic people's republic of korea and that is what basically a sham election is a sham election is a show and it is without any significant political choices or real impacts on results of the election. Sham elections are held to show the legitimacy of a government and they always show an 80 to 100% turnout with positive results for the benefit of the government with predicted candidates. Or if they are held for referendums, the results are always in favor of the political party that is in power. Sometimes the questions are only a yes or no, and then if you vote, then you get a stamp in your passport. So it is always recorded in your papers that you voted no, for example, for a certain referendum, and then you're always considered an enemy of the state, and wherever you go, they don't give you your social rights. The funny thing is that in some cases, sham elections could backfire against the party in power. This is especially if the regime believes that they are popular enough to win without any fraud or without any doubt. The most famous example of this was the 1919 Myanmar general election, in which the government-sponsored National Unity Party suffered a landslide defeat to the opposition National League for Democracy, and then they had to annul the result of the election. And these days you see that there is a coup d'etat going on in Myanmar. So surprises keep coming out of this country. Dictator governments around the world use elections to legitimize their existence and to show that they have support within the body of the society. Sometimes the governments that are under economic pressure, they uh, kind of uh, hold an election to just show that they are open. But in many cases, they use all tools that they can to uh, manipulate the results of that election. Could it be the postponement of the election? Could it be canceling the result of an election? Could it be rigging in the elections, adding or removing to the ballots or any other way you may imagine? So this goes to show that elections are important and whether you really need it in order for the society to function and the choices to be made or you just hold it as a show to reach a political goal, all sorts of government around the world hold elections because that is the definition of democracy or at least that is how we define democracy these days. I just want to very quickly also talk a little bit about the economic side of the elections and to point out that the elections by itself is somewhat of a giant industry around the world, especially in Western countries and particularly in the United States. The money that goes into election campaigns is massive and how it influences the results is beyond imagination. The way it should be in an ideal situation, the carrier of a representative should work for itself and somebody who has a lot of skills or a good background should always win the votes, no matter how much money they put in their campaign or 
how much money the opponent is putting into the campaign, but it does really make a big difference. For example, in the referendum of the Brexit, both Leave and Remain campaigns had to reach a certain amount of money to be spent for their campaign, and it was within the rules that any campaign that exceeds a certain amount of money, they should pay a, a giant a fine. So the Leave campaign did exceed this amount of money, and they did pay the fine, which was legal, but the results turned out to be in favor of the Leave with a very small margin. With just 1%, the Leave campaign succeeded, only because they spent more money and they paid for it. But the destiny of a whole country is now changed because of that. There was no laws to cancel the results because one campaign paid more because money should not be that big of an issue. But it is. And Brexit is a perfect example for that. The more money you put in a campaign, the more advertising you do, the better polls and results you will get in the end. Just to give you an idea with the numbers, the most expensive election campaign was 7 billion US dollars that was spent on the 2012 United States presidential election and the 5 billion US dollar that was spent on 2014 Indian general elections. Speaking of Indian general elections, I spoke about sham elections but I also like to speak about elections in India, because India is considered the biggest democracy in the whole world, and for a good reason, because the population is so big. So the election process has to also be able to cover all of that population. Eligible voters in India are around 900 million people, and within the election laws of India is that no person should be away more than two kilometers from a ballot box. This means that the election process in India does not take a day or two or a week, it takes a month. And what happens is that a giant army of officials, they go around the country using any transportation method that you can imagine, including cars, boats, elephants, and whatnot, in order to be able to cast every vote. And it is a very complicated process indeed, because India is a country with 22 official languages and many, many religions and dialects and cultures. And in order to find a system that can cover all of this diversity is indeed a big job. Until the 70s, only 30% of the population in India were literate, and this number grew to 70% now. But in order to still be able to cover that 30% and for people to recognize the party of their choice to be able to vote to, each party is represented by a visual symbol. For example, a hand, an elephant, a clock or other symbols. And these officials go around the country with a device that has um, many buttons on them. And each button has a symbol. And as a voter, you have to push a button to cast your ballot and they have to move to another neighborhood and another neighborhood and another neighborhood until they have all of the 900 million votes. This is a fascinating practice of democracy, in my opinion. And when I learned about it, I was really amazed at how can they manage this in this size.
So now the question is whether election is by nature something democratic and does it really represent democracy? It is widely known and common to equate uh, representative governments and elections with democracy. And competitive elections under universal suffrage are one of democracy's defining characteristics. But universal suffrage is not a necessary condition of competitive electoral politics. An election may be limited by formal legal requirements, or it may be limited to failure of citizens to exercise their right to vote. That means that the election is there, it is fair, and it is inclusive, but the citizens necessarily don't feel that they are being heard if they are participating in the election. There are more and more examples of people not participating in elections and the elections not reaching even half of the uh, limit that it needs to. But why is that? Why people don't feel like their voice is being heard or election doesn't necessarily solve their problems? This problem has been very nicely explained in the book of Against Election by David van Rijbroek who is a Belgian writer and wrote this really nice, fascinating book about elections and sortition, which is an ancient Athenian uh, practice in electing. And this book is basically a proposal of a new system by which democracy can be more efficient. I hope in the future I can invite David to participate in our podcast as a guest and explain his ideas a bit further. In the very beginning of the book, under symptoms, he explains this problem very clearly. And as an ending to this episode, I'm gonna cite some of these texts. There is something strange going on with democracy. Everyone seems to want it, but no one believes in it any longer. Even though international statistics tell us more and more people say they are in favor of it. A few years ago, the World Values Survey, a large-scale international research project, questioned more than 73,000 people in 57 countries, representing almost 85% of the world's population. When asked whether they believe democracy to be a good way of governing a country, no fewer than 91.6% answered in the affirmative. The proportion of the global population that has a positive attitude to the concept of democracy has never been as great as it is today. This degree of enthusiasm is nothing short of spectacular, especially in light of the fact that less than 70 years ago, democracy was in a very bad way. As a result of fascism, communism, and colonialism, when the Second World War ended, there were only 12 fully-fledged democracies. Slowly, the numbers started to rise, and in the 1972, there were 44 free states. By 1993, they numbered 72, and now there are 117 electoral democracies out of the total of 195 countries, 90 of which can actually be defined in practice as a free state. Never before in history have there been so many democracies, never before so many supporters of this form of government. Yet, enthusiasm is declining. That same World Values Survey showed that worldwide over the past 10 years, there has been a considerable increase in the calls for a strong leader who does not have to bother with parliaments and elections. 
and a trust in parliaments, governments, and political parties has reached a historical low. It would appear that people like the idea of democracy, but not the reality of it, or at any rate, not the current reality. I just want to add in between brackets that this book was released in 2013, and the election of Donald Trump hasn't happened yet. But Van Raybroek, uh, he really expects a rise of popularism, which is interesting because it really happens later in Europe, in the United States, and in other parts of the world. So then he explains the idea of trust within the government, and he tries to dig in this notion of trust a little bit. And later he goes on to say that this trust is mutual, incidentally. In 2011, Dutch researcher Peter Kane presented some interesting figures on how politicians in The Hague look at Dutch society. A full 87% of the country's governing elite sees itself as innovative, freedom-loving, and internationally oriented. But 89% think the Dutch are generally traditional, nationalistic, and conservative. So politicians assume that, on the whole, citizens adhere to other, in their view, lesser values than they do, and there is no reason to believe that the picture is different elsewhere in Europe. However, getting back to the citizen, the reason often given for this increase in distrust is the apathy, which results from the individualization and consumerism. This is said to dull citizens' critical engagement to such an extent that their faith in democracy has subsided into half-heartedness. At best, they now bob about in listless indifference and change channels the moment politics is mentioned. Having given up, we are informed on politics. That, however, is not entirely in accordance with the facts. As while it might be true that a substantial proportion of people have little interest in politics, that has always been the case. There has been no recent decline in fact, research shows that concern about political issues is greater than it used to be, and people discuss such issues with friends, family, and colleagues more than they did in the past. This interest in politics is not a reason to feel reassured. However, as an era in which interest in politics grows, while faith in politics declines, always has something explosive about it. After all, it means there is a growing gulf between what citizens think about what they see politicians doing, between what they regard as vital and what, in their view, the state is neglecting, resulting in a build-up of frustration. What does it mean for the stability of a country if more and more people varily keep track of the doings of an authority which they increasingly distrust? How much derision can a system endure? And is it still merely derision, now that everyone can express and share their deeply felt opinions online? We live in a world quite opposite to that of the 1960s. Then a simple farmer and his wife could be completely apathetic about politics and yet have complete faith in democracy. Sociological research confirms such confidence existed, a faith that characterized large parts of Western Europe. Then there was apathy and trust, while now there is passion and distrust. These are turbulent times. So you can see how Van Raybroek is uh, trying to explain that the times have changed and the trust is declining, in his opinion, in both ways. And the ways of life, of consumption, 
is really not leaving much space for people to be able to think outside of the box and uh, the current systems are kind of not really efficient as they were in the past. His argument that people are more and more becoming politically engaged, perhaps in their life but not in practice, is something interesting to me. Because it means that people have things to offer but they are just holding back. And that is because there is no trust and satisfaction within this representative system. So that was it for our second episode and I hope you enjoyed it. It was a little bit longer than I expected, but I had to dig in a little bit more into this notion of election and unfold it for myself and for you. I hope you learned something new in this episode and I hope you stay with me explaining these basic notions in the first episodes to be able to really dig in more into the idea of the open source governance and how it is necessary to learn about these terms before we dig a bit more deeper into more complex notions. And as for the next episode, I will try to explain referendums and different methods that are used for voting around the world. This will be a little bit of practical explanation of how votes are counted. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to visit the website opensourcegovernance.com and follow us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook everywhere with the user of Project OSG. And if you're already feeling that you are enjoying this podcast, a donation or contribution to our cause is really of appreciation. Until next month and another episode, have a good one.